welcome back to This Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm great. I am so happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, Disney CEO Bob Iger has figured out what's wrong with the company. They went they went woke, and now, now they're going broke? That is at least one read on recent Iger statements about the failure of recent offerings like Lightyear, Strange World, and Wish, along with the disastrous performance of The Marvels, uh, which will end up being the worst-grossing Marvel film of all time by a giant... Enormous margin. Terrible result there for them. Uh, in an interview at the DealBook Summit last week, Iger said that the company's creative partners, quote, lost sight of what their number one objective needed to be. We have to entertain first. It's not about messages, end quote. Uh, if you've been following Disney's travails in recent years, this seems like a not-so-subtle white flag in the face of claims by conservative politicians and commentators that Disney's economic issues stem first and foremost from the company's alienation of its brand as a family-first destination beloved by kids and parents alike. From the quick lesbian kiss and light year to the gay son and strange world to the blink and you miss it on screen but heavily touted on social media, non-binary water blob in Elemental. Uh, conservatives have been chanting, go woke, grow woke, go, go woke, go broke for years. I can't even get the, That's how I can't we even know get it out. You're not a real conservative, Sonny, because you can't do the chant right. Don't worry, they will tell you the same thing. Uh, and it seems as though Iger has finally, finally listened. He's finally gotten the message. Don't go woke because you go broke. Or I, I'm going to just posit a minor hypothetical here. Maybe he's found an excuse. Allow me to suggest that Iger, who is the architect of Disney's streaming first strategy with Disney+, Plus, is pivoting here to distract attention from the real problem with Disney's animation brand, which is that he and his Imagineers have trained audiences to stay home to watch Disney's animated fare and Disney's Marvel line of products. This is the thing I hear over and over again with Disney's marginal movies, uh, like the aforementioned pictures or recent Marvel flops, again, like the Marvels or Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Time and time again, I hear from Disney Plus subscribers who say the simple following thing, eh, I'll wait to watch it at home. During the pandemic, Disney and Pixar's animated properties went straight to Disney Plus, teaching families that they didn't need to spend a hundred bucks on a matinee and popcorn if they wanted to distract their kids for two hours. I uh, combine that with middling creative products, and every movie I've mentioned so far has either been middling or bad, one of the two. Uh, Bob Iger has created a situation in which audiences really don't mind waiting to watch stuff at home. Have the messages hurt Disney at the margins with conservative audiences? Probably, yeah though it should be noted that Iger himself called out his short-time replacement Bob Chapek for not standing more strongly against Florida's so-called don't-say-gay law, meaning that he is not without blame here. He's sitting there on the sidelines telling Chapek, you got to get in, you got to get involved here, you got to back your people. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, too much, too much of that. But you don't see a total collapse in, say, the MCU's grosses for sequels like Quantumania and the Marvels, which are more or less completely apolitical, without a sea change in the business landscape. And that sea change is streaming. That is what they have done to their brand. Peter, let me ask you, very important question here. Has Disney gone broke from being woke, or is it something else? 
I think it's mostly something else. It's hard to say. There's no good survey evidence. CinemaScore doesn't ask, did you give this a C plus because you thought the politics were annoying or because it wasn't funny enough? We just, we don't have good data on this. And so it's really hard to untangle. Uh, if I had to guess, it's mostly not the politics of the movies. And here's the reason why is because if you go right, go back right before the pandemic, Two of Marvel's biggest films, in fact, probably the two biggest upside surprises, okay, maybe two of the five biggest upside surprises, as if, because Guardians of the Galaxy really overperformed what people thought it was going to. Two of the three? I don't know. Something like that. Two of their biggest upside surprises. Some number of no, but, movies. But like two, two movies that they looked at as, we thought they would do well, and they did even better, uh, were Captain Marvel and Black Panther. And now- we don't need to, in this segment of this podcast today, have an argument about whether those were woke, quote unquote, movies. We're going to just use this language, even though it's obviously like it's not helpful in certain ways. But we're just going to go with that because that's that's the thing that's that people the say. Rhyme. Yes, that's the rhyme. Because it's the rhyme. And uh, like Sonny, I'm not conservative enough to be able to remember what the chant was. But those movies wildly overperformed just a couple of years ago. Captain Marvel was a billion dollar film. And I think Disney and Marvel looked at the performance of those movies and said, especially if we're going to keep this thing going, and by this thing, I mean the MCU, this massive mega franchise, if we're going to keep this going and we're going to keep expanding it, so that's not just sort of making it go longer, then what we've got to do is we've got to lean into the diversity characters. lean Because like that's where, in some ways, that's where how you target audiences, and that's also where the characters that we don't know about that they needed to build brands for, that's where they are, right? Like, uh, we we kind of went through all of the white guys named, you know, who could be played by actors named Chris characters. And so you need to build up a bunch of others. And that's, and then you need to have a selling point. You need to have an audience marketing strategy. And that's, that's characters like Black Panther and Captain Marvel. And so they went ahead and they did that. And then, of course, the pandemic happened. And as you said, Sonny, the thing that happened during the pandemic was a bunch of stuff got released to streaming and Disney Plus had just debuted right before the pandemic. It had uh, done better than expected with The Mandalorian. That, that was the first signature show for the network. And then they decided, well, theaters are who knows if, if and when things will reopen or what that will look like. Let's pull all of our as much of our audience as we can into Disney Plus. And I think that proved to be uh, a problem because it trained people to stay home. But then also all of this, we've talked about this a zillion times on the show, uh, but it's really, really true with the Marvels in particular. All of these streaming shows made the big events feel not like big events. They also made it feel like the big events were going to be confusing when you have the Marvels direct Director Nia DaCosta out there giving quotes like this movie is a sequel to like five different things. That's not a precise quote, but it's very, very nearly what she said on the record in an interview that wasn't her slagging her own movie. That was supposed to be like, I think, an advertisement or something or maybe a kind of an apology. I don't know. But when a movie is a sequel to five different things, many of which at least three of which were. TV shows that I, not even all of us have seen. It's like 18, 20, 30 hours of stuff. It just starts, it really starts to feel like homework. And yet the combination of all of these things, I think, is a bigger problem uh, than 
than the sort of specific political adjacency of it. The political adjacency probably probably made some of these problems worse and probably made some groups of people less likely to go see these movies. But I think they could have, like in a, in a non-pandemic world without Disney Plus or where Disney Plus was a sort of little side brand, I think they could have continued to sell movies that like they were selling before the pandemic happened. Now, Alyssa, I do think when you're looking at the MCU and the animation worlds, there are two separate issues here. One is like a very palpable sense of superhero fatigue. We've discussed that on this show. I mean, it's not just the Marvel stuff that is failing, right? The Flash uh, bombed horribly. Blue Beetle uh, underperformed pretty dramatically. Black Adam. Um, Black Adam. I mean, like Black Adam is the high watermark in some ways uh, of box office for superhero movies. Shazam Um, 2 was just a, a, a wreck compared to the first one, which did pretty well. Exactly. So, like, the, the, we're we're looking at two we're looking at two kind of separate problems here. There, you got superhero fatigue over there, and then you have the animated stuff. And I do think that there is look. I think there is that is a different market. That is a uh, uh, the sort of thing where you are appealing to parents. You are trying to do the family friendly thing. You're trying to do the we. This is a safe space for your kids. You know, I I do think that there is a more plausible case there that some of the more political stuff alienated families with young children. Yeah, and I struggle with this conversation because there is something that feels really ugly to me about saying that, like, the existence of gay people in society is, like, political and including it at all is offensive. I mean, I just, I find, part of the reason I find Chapek's, oh, sorry, not Chapek, Iger. The Bobs would not be. The Bob. It's called Kurt Bob. Bob. Bob number one, the once in future Bob. Uh, Bob Prime. Um, I think the reason I find Bob Prime's comments so gross is that it's not just, you know, that it's such an obvious an excuse for business failure, but that it feels kind of nasty, right? In part because, like, these things, these instances, these inclusions of these characters are so minor and fleeting. There's such sort of thin gruel to offer anybody that – the idea that just like the existence of gay people is like, oh, it's political, it's dangerous, like it's the only place you're going to get it. It just it feels just ugly and offensive and mean to me, right? I mean, it feels like a throwback to a, just a radically different era of our politics of inclusion. That said, again, like thinking of this as sort of a from a cold hearted business perspective, I don't know if the problem was ever including these characters or these relationships or these fleeting moments. But trying to, you know, make them a selling point of the movies because they weren't significant enough to be sort of meaningful sources of representation for anyone who is queer. So selling them was always, you know, kind of insulting as a marketing move. And it did call attention to the stuff in a way that, you know, allowed a certain class of cultural commentators, you know, that just like provided them with fodder and sort of a case for building a sort of alternative content universe. And like the existence of gay people is not family unfriendly to my family, right? Like I, that is not some attack on my family values. I can see where the sort of political attempt to be like, oh, we should get points for doing good things you know, when the good things were so minor as to be almost irrelevant, you know, ended up being sort of a business problem. But I think the fact that that's a business problem is ugly and frustrating to me. And so this is just a hard conversation for me to have. 
I also just want to say, I think a lot of these recent movies have not been that great. Yeah. Um, and like Lightyear, you know, irrespective of its like, you know, inclusion was just like unwatchably annoying. You know, the idea of even just going to see Wish was totally unappealing. I think that the Pixar turn, like, I really like Inside Out as a movie. I liked Soul quite a bit. But I think the turn to, like, you know, sort of introspective abstraction has been a huge mistake for Pixar's brand as sort of, like, I mean, I'm sorry, but, like, trying to explain, like, the idea of, like, the islands of personality to a five-year-old is, like, actually kind of hard. Yeah. Um, and so More I think that, talking animals. Yeah, more talking animals or talking toys or just, like, something creative and surprising. I mean, I feel like Disney itself and even Pixar feel like they're kind of making the same movies over and over again. And so I think there is an element of fatigue that sort of limits the specialness. And the best movie that Disney's put out in a couple of years by you know, just quite a large margin is Encanto, which they put on streaming and sort of had to be yeah. – kind of pushed into doing a theatrical release. So, you know, I think Disney has had this combination of oversaturation, repetitiveness, training people to think that their stuff isn't special, and then kind of stepping in it with some political stuff, even though, again, the humanity of gay people and their presence of, like, the presence of queer and non-binary people is not like, this is the world as it exists, right? (laughs) Just... And well, so I, I I recognize that I am kind of sputtering and talking myself in circles, but you know I find this sort of capitulation around this dressed up as like smart business strategy to be just smug and gross, and it makes me really angry at Bob Iger. Let's set aside the the business of it uh, yeah. for a moment and just and just look at the artistry of it because like for instance with Strange World again this was this was just objectively a big part of the marketing they were like yeah. we have we have this uh, gay youth and he has a relationship and he you know this is our this is our first real real gay character right right like but the problem with that marketing angle was that the actual relationship was totally dramatically inert within the film itself there was no tension from it it was just like it it like it was almost comical every character went out of their way to be like that's great we support you and like fine that like that 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 is that's a per- but it also like if if that is going to be like a big crux of the story that you're telling there needs to be some dramatic resonance there and there just wasn't it was totally inert so I'm not suggesting that uh, Disney should start releasing NC-17 rated, um, like complicated gender dramas. But I did watch Passages, the new Iris Axe film, <laughs> over the weekend. And in fact, right, this he's a he's a gay Jewish director who explores a lot of this stuff in his movies. And his new movie is about a movie director who is in a, a, a who's married to a man and then ends up sleeping with a woman. And in, in fact, it's there's a huge amount of conflict over the sexuality in the film, and that's part of what makes it really, really interesting is that it is wrestling with complicated sexuality rather than just making a movie about how you know what pe- some people have are, are, are not straight white men and that's great and that's that's what, right like there's like there's a ton of like really quite difficult emotional conflict in the movie and that's what makes it good in any uh and of and a fascinating exploration of these complicated relationships and you know and so it's not that disney needs to make movies uh like iris x makes the the NC seventeen rated Pixar movie. Actually, I do want to see that. But um, if you're going to make movies about 
not white, not straight men, right? Where that's not at the center of your story, then you've got to like portray that life and and portray what it's like to be a person who who you know who is who is gay or who is non-binary or whatever, and in a way that actually adds to the story. And it doesn't seem like that's what's happening here. Can I push back against that a little bit? I mean, I think the Disney the appropriate Disney way to do this actually would have been to have queer characters or non-binary characters and sort of have it as a non-issue. Um, it wouldn't make it core to the marketing, but like if you have a casino at a kid's birthday party, like have two dads there, like not even in every movie, maybe just occasionally. And I, I also just like, you know. Well, sure. Yeah. It, and But that, then it, become, it becomes not a selling point. Right. Make it not a selling point. Make it just a thing that's part of the tapestry. Like if I were Disney, I would have done this stuff, but made it not a selling point. And then instead of, you know, being like, oh, this incredibly thin gruel we're offering you is historic. When conservative commentators blow up, they can be like, I mean, it's the world. We have black people. There are gay people like you, like you're really so challenged by like something that your kids aren't even going to notice. Um, well, but, like, but yeah, but you get to the, you get to, you got to the heart of the problem, you know, uh, when we talked about the marketing of these yeah. films, again, it's, it's this weird reaction to Twitter and Tumblr and TikTok where like people are yelling at Disney executives and writers and animators on Twitter. And they're like, we need to do this because we got, we got to be inclusive. Yeah. And like, look, we did it. We, Hey, celebrate us. And like, I'm sorry, if you make that a part of the marketing campaign, it is going to rub people the wrong way. It just is uh, like, you know, we can talk about whether or not that's true, but I, I, I still think that this is all such a sideshow. Like Bob yeah. Iger, Bob, Bob Iger, again, who, when, when, uh, speaking of euphemisms that are, are going to make people angry, again, when the don't say gay stuff was being argued in Florida and Chapek was like, we are going to do things to support our gay employees. We are going to, you know, but we are not going to take a position on this. And that caused all sorts of outrage internally. Bob Iger started poking him from the sidelines. Like, well, you got to take a stand. You got to do what's right. And like, I'm sorry. I'm like, you don't get to, you don't get to play both sides here. I love the sheer number of euphemisms that Sonny has accidentally worked into this commentary. But well, there's I, well I, again, everyone on all sides is going to be mad at me. So you know, I, I don't I don't want to I don't want to leave anyone out. I'm I'm inclusive in my uh, agitation. All right, Just for uh, what it's worth, I was mad at you before we did the segment for totally unrelated reasons. It's probably because we I was trying to force you guys to do Silent Night, but we'll we'll talk to, we'll talk about that in a minute. All right. Uh so what do we think is uh will Disney's box office fortunes improve if the Mouse House gets away from quote unquote messaging and back to simply entertaining? Again, quote unquote, I think. Peter. Well, on the the Marvel side of things, the fortunes are going to improve when they make a Fantastic Four movie and an X-Men movie. And especially when they make an X-Men movie. People are going to see an X-Men movie. That's what they need to do is make an X-Men movie. I'm sorry. I've said this before. But if you are relying on the Fantastic Four to turn around your universe, you're in bad shape. They have tried that on a number of occasions, and it fails every time because nobody cares about the Fantastic Four. I love the Fantastic Four. I had a subscription for years. It was the first comic book that I think I ever bought off of a rack at a CVS or whatever the hell it was back then. Peter, nobody cares about Fantastic Four. Alyssa. This is the uh controversy. Uh, you enjoy yourself again, nerd. Um, you know, I, hell with you, Bob Iger. That's, this is a controversy wow. and I'm this. disappointed in you. 
so you're saying you're not supporting Bob Iger for the Democratic nomination for president? <laughs> I am. I that he thought not, he was. I will not be voting for Bob Iger for president. And he, remember when he floated that for a while? I was like, I'm going to run for president because that's what everyone wants is <laughs> yeah, a former like, Disney executive. Yeah, I will. I will not be voting for Bob Iger for president now or ever. And you know, I just. He should be ashamed of himself. He, Bob Iger, you're bad and you should feel bad. Wow. Ang angry. Uh, I think it's obviously a controversy. This is a very, very controversial time. Uh, so we're we're going to the, the lean into it. All right. Uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday about Silent Night. John Woo's masterpiece aims squarely at the hopes and fears of Richard Nixon's silent majority. And now <laughs> on to the main event. May, December, the new movie from Todd Haynes is on Netflix now. It's getting a lot of award season buzz for the performances by Julianne Moore as Gracie, who is a Mary Kay Letourneau style older woman who seduced uh, John Yu, who's played by Charles Melton, uh, when he was a seventh grader, some 20, 25 years before the film begins. Uh, Natalie Portman plays the actress Elizabeth, who has come to their quaint Savannah home to study the couple, uh, whose twin children are about to graduate from high school, so there's lots of drama preparation around that. Elizabeth is prepping an indie film about their coupling and wants to learn about their life so she can channel it into her work. Um, as part of her journey through the modern existence of Gracie and Charles, she sees that they get the occasional box of poo left on their doorstep by disgruntled neighbors. Uh, Elizabeth talks to people in their lives, you know, Gracie's ex-husband, her disturbed son who is about Charles's age, uh, the lawyer who represented her during the trial, her neighbors and friends, et cetera, et cetera, to get a portrait of their lives. And the resulting glimpse is perhaps unsurprisingly complicated. Charles is functionally a man-child. He's unable to fully grasp his own emotional state. Gracie is manipulative and prone to exaggerated breakdowns as a result of being a pariah from certain folks. Uh, and Elizabeth's own duplicity reveals a messy situation made uglier by the public's prurient desire to peer into the lives of others. Full disclosure, Todd Haynes is a little bit like David Lynch, a director whose work I kind of coldly admire from a distance, but have just never been able to connect with. Uh, May, December is frequently quietly funny in its understated line readings and juxtapositions. The whole thing is shot and framed and lit with elegance and eloquence. Um, and I just did not really care about the lives of these people at, at all. Perhaps the not caring is a result of the movie being constructed like a farcical melodrama with musical stings that make it feel like a 1990s Lifetime production uh, combined with the occasional flashy camera move like zooming in fast on Gracie as she stands in front of her fridge only to see her dramatically say, I don't think we have enough hot dogs. Now again, there's a, there's a good a, bit. There's there's precision in the framing and the humor here, right? The it, there's this great juxtaposition where it zooms in and she says this, and then it cuts to Charles at the grill where there are dozens of hot dogs. There's so many hot dogs. She has plenty of hot dogs. There's no. It's funny, kind of. It's it's clever. I just was kind of annoyed by the whole thing. May, May December isn't camp. I've seen some people describe it as camp. It's not camp. 
it is melodrama, and that's a mode I can only really vibe with in certain situations, and those situations usually involve lots of guns. Um, Haynes's vibes are very hit and miss for me. Uh, on the positive side of the ledger, you have Superstar, his underground classic retelling the life of uh, Karen Carpenter through the movements of a Barbie doll. Um, you also have Wonderstruck, the finale of which just blindsided me. It, like, it left me a wreck. Uh, but on the negative side of the ledger, you have Carol, uh, which left me incredibly cold. Uh, and I'm Not There, which I think has an interesting conceit but didn't work for me at all. Uh, May, December falls squarely into the did not work side of things. Again, it's occasionally kind of funny. Like, I don't even find it that moving. I just, I just didn't care about these folks. Uh, it, it's it's a pretty big miss, I think. And it's less interesting than it seems to think it is. Alyssa, on our text thread, you seemed more into May-December than I was. What made it work for you that I am missing? Charles Melton's performance as Joe, um, which I think is kind of incredible. And there's this, there's an interesting little moment in Potential Leading Men we have where um, he uh, had previously started on Riverdale, the like sort of crazed CW reinterpretation of the Archie comics. Um, and then Jacob Elordi, who uh, got introduced through Euphoria, again, like a sort of, a show that I kind of hate, um, you know, I think was very, very good in Priscilla. But, you know, I think that this is a movie about the immorality of acting and filmmaking, right? You know, Elizabeth shows up and is like, is doing the thing that, actors and actresses and directors have sort of been conditioned to do by the tastes of the media and audiences, which is, you know, she says she wants to do research. She wants to be authentic. She wants to, you know, be sort of, be able to be sort of honest and, you know, have integrity as she portrays this complicated character in this complicated story. In her first conversation with Gracie, she talks about, you know, I want to make sure that you feel seen, right? Which is this, you know, kind of amazing stock phrase that I think has become very common in kind of political discussions about art. And is that what she wants? I don't really think that's what she wants. I think she uses that justification to behave in, you know, sort of perverse and ugly ways. Um, you know, it's like she's just like doing research when she seduces Joe or, you know, she sort of insinuates herself in these people's lives. And then the question, the question of the movie is sort of to what extent Gracie is kind of putting on a performance of her own. But the cost of that is to Joe, right? The cost of Gracie's kind of public self-conception. And then also in terms of kind of what Elizabeth does to him to get the material that she thinks she needs to be, you know, authentic in what is, you know, from what we see of the shooting at the end of the movie, looks exactly as sort of made for TV and melodramatic and ridiculous as a previous fictionalization of the case that she's seen, you know, watching earlier, right? And so... You know, you can have Gracie and Elizabeth behaving as bizarrely as you like at any point in the movie, but the movie doesn't land without Melton's performance as someone who has been living a, a lie for several decades and is finally coming to terms with what that has cost him, right? I mean, he starts the movie as this kind of blank and you see that shell sort of break open and you see the undeveloped person 
you know, not actually able to emerge the way that the butterflies he raises does. Um, the way Haynes handles it is really interesting because it's something that's so obvious, right? It's like, it's obvious to the point of obnoxiousness. And yet he manages to make the butterflies and the, like the chrysalises and the eggs seem sort of unnerving and science fictional and kind of scary, right? I mean, you know, he's raising these animals that are, or insects that are, you know, that are beautiful, that are sort of fetishized and valued and considered important because they're extinct. But, you know, the eggs, the chrysalises, there's, you know, there's a kind of science fiction monster, you know, horror movie infestation quality to the way that they're filmed that adds to the uneasiness of the movie in a way that really worked for me. And, you know, I think if it's just these two actresses, and Julianne Moore has appeared in a bunch of Haynes' movies, um, including both Safe and Far From Heaven, if it was just these two actresses kind of duking it out, it would be fun to watch as an acting showcase. But Melton is the person who ties it all together and lends, you know, sort of real moral heft to what Hayes is doing. And it's interesting that, you know, he's someone who made, kind of made his, he's known for his role sort of in the new queer cinema in the idea of kind of championing sexual outlaws and outsiders. And this is in many ways a, you know, quite a conservative movie, right? It's like, this is wrong. What was done to this person is wrong. There is no sort of facade of, you know, conservative, conventional family morality or, you know, there is no sort of ethic of consent that can make this okay, right? It's just wrong. It damaged this person and it's wrong. Um, and that arc is very interesting, but I think Melton's performance really ties it together and makes it something more than just a sort of amusing, well-executed, uh, perverse acting showcase. Yeah, he's he's definitely uh, the most interesting and, again, the most morally centered part of the film. The kind of turn about two-thirds of the way through where it becomes clear that Elizabeth, the actress, is, is doing a fundamentally wrong thing, inserting herself into this family is interesting. And it reminded me a little bit of, frankly, journalism. Yeah. You know, if you, if you are a journalist and you uh, are doing a profile piece, uh, unless you are doing a straight up hagiography of that person, they, they are going to wind up feeling betrayed um, or hurt or wounded by the amount of access that they have given you and you then reveal to the public. I mean, it just, it, it happens a lot. It ha I'll say it And that is explicitly the uh, the text of the conversation between uh, Charles Melton's character and Natalie Portman's character when they have that walk on the beach uh, outside about two-thirds of the way through the film is that he talks about how they, he, he and his family have let Portman's actress into their lives, and he hopes that whatever comes of this will portray it as it was rather than as something else. And of course, it seems like the intent is is to portray it as something else, something that it isn't. Yeah. Uh, Peter, what did you make of this movie? I really liked this movie. It is one of my favorite films of the year. Um, so I, I think Alyssa is right to to talk about how it's about acting and filmmaking. And you are right, Sonny. Um, I've had this in my notes that it's 
feels very journalistic um, and kind of like an indictment of journalism in a lot of ways. But it's also just about voyeurism generally and the, the kind of sleazy and gross allure of watching people in an incredibly difficult um, yet salaciously interesting situation. And it's about the, the way that so much of the public treats those scenarios uh, as stories, essentially, um, as a kind of fiction that is divorced from real humans uh, and, and real human feelings. Um, and it just treats in particular the Charles Melton character here, Joe Yu, uh, as a kind of object who has feelings, right, that can be provoked that are of interest, but not feelings that you're supposed to in any way kind of relate to yourself or care about in a real sense. And maybe, Sonny, that's why you didn't care or you felt yourself a little bit distanced here. But I, I just thought this was a tremendously humane movie, right? And it, and then it's about, you know, Portman is the, is the bad guy here, is the villain in a lot of ways, because she treats her subjects as those kind of vicarious, sleazy pleasures, right? That she can experience the all of the hurt and the pain and the, the bizarre of their lives at essentially no risk to her, not just no risk. She gets all of the upside of the kind of, right, it's all of the the heat and the, the drama of it because she's clearly as an actress and just as a person addicted to a kind of drama. There are two scenes in particular that, that bring that out. The first uh, is when she uh, is interviewing the owner of the pet shop where the uh, famous encounter happened and she asks to see the break room or the storage room or something like uh, some back room where, uh, you know, Julianne Moore's character and Charles Melton's character were caught. She goes back there by herself and you can just see her writhing in a kind of pleasure that goes beyond an actress trying to capture and, um, you know, and perfect a moment. She is enjoying imagining herself in that moment and, and being able to sort of slide into it in, in a way that is, that is kind of gross, um, right? And in that, she is just... Even though there is no one there, even though no one ever actually sees that particular moment, except, of course, then at the very end of the film when she recreates it on film. But nobody sees her there doing that in that moment. But in doing that, she is performing a kind of abuse on the subjects, uh, is, I think, the argument uh, in this film. And she is turning them into something that they are not. Because, yes, they are deeply damaged people. In a, in a truly bizarre situation. But there are people who've been hurting a lot for a long time, and, and they have tried to deal with that, both the Charles Melton character uh, and Julianne Moore's character in a different way, I think. Um, but they've tried to deal with their hurting and, um, by, you know, just by sort of suppressing the pain and becoming as normal as possible. And the problem is, this movie just is so psychologically astute in the way that it sort of that it deals with with trauma and uh, with suppression of emotion, right, and uh, and feeling and stuff that's unresolved, is that you can't like you can have as many like essentially normal cookouts in your backyard uh, as possible, but then those feelings are going to come out somehow or another, and that's in part what that that very funny and very telling line about the hot dogs is about is that Julianne Moore's character. In some ways, like there's always this risk. There's always this possibility that she is going to blow up or that melt or melt down. Maybe is a, a better uh, phrase for it. And it's just, I just was fascinated by 
the depth and acuity of this movie's uh, sort of psychological portrait of all three of its main characters, from you know Natalie Portman's voyeuristic kind of awful person uh, to the total innocence and repression of Charles Melton's character to Julianne Moore's someone she was trying to be normal and cannot be because she's not a normal person and also because she has repressed and absolutely refused to deal with the consequences of her own actions for so long. And you just don't see movies that are this human and this humane all that often. I, I can't think of very many others uh, this year in particular. And so I I give this movie like I think it's very well done on its own terms, but I also just give it a little bit of a like some some extra points on my on my scale because it deals with not normal people in the sense of like these are everyday ordinary Americans, but it deals with people who aren't in an action movie plot, right? Who aren't superheroes, who live kind of ordinary suburban lives, and, and they're not ordinary, but like something like that, and then. And like tries to come, tries to like in in something like a contemporary setting. And yes, I know it's a few years ago. I believe this takes place sort of like mid 2015, 16 or 16, yeah. something. It's like the that, class like, of 2015. Right. The, yeah. But an essentially contemporary setting and tries to actually sort of, you know, and then also is filmed in a real place. Right. Like they filmed this movie uh, at some place that like it doesn't look like it's on a soundstage. Right. This is all like uh, this is what this is what real places look like. And I I enjoy a movie that has some that is trying to actually figure out something about human beings rather than uh, you know just have a car crashes and and shootouts. I, I like the car crashes and the shootouts, but there's a but but I, I guess I'm basically arguing with you right now, Sonny, about why we did this movie rather than Silent Night. But um, but also I just no, no, really I, enjoyed this on its own terms. I was going to ask what you guys made of Gracie's character and of this mystery that the movie leaves about whether or not she herself was abused. Um, and it was interesting. I mean, I went back and looked up the inciting case. Um, and it's not quite equivalent, but like Mary Kay Letourneau's father, interestingly, was like a prominent conservative commentator and politician who turned out to have had an affair with one of his former college students, uh, which was discovered when one of the kids was like, horribly abused he refused to take any responsibility for the kids and like they ended up in an orphanage and so there is like none of which justifies anything that mary Kay latorneau did to billy falau but that sort of central question of like was gracie herself a victim was she traumatized like who is she right because and i think to a certain extent it's meant to remain unresolved because the movie is you know sort of about the sort of inherent corruptness of this effort to get deep inside someone's head. But also the movie just sort of presents Gracie as kind of fundamentally unknowable. And I was just curious, because we've talked a lot about Natalie Portman's character and Charles Melton's character, but we haven't talked about Moore's at all. I I think the movie's argument is not just that these characters are unknowable from the outside. They're it's not just that Natalie Portman can't can't get into the head of, of Gracie or not in a realistic way. It's that Gracie herself doesn't know. She is unwilling to deal with her own issues. And she is living a lie, not in the sense of pub, a public lie. In, in a weird sense, their public life is more or less is pretty transparent. Um, she's And she's not trying to manipulate people and her perception, like how p- people see her. Although maybe she is a little like 
It's that she is trying to manipulate her own perception of herself because she cannot reckon with what she has done with her life and the consequences of it. And to do so would be to to totally break down. And so she breaks down in other ways, like when somebody cancels their cake orders and she's sobbing on the bed for who knows how long, right? She yeah. she is she's always on the verge of that breakdown of self of self recognition, except that the breakdowns are uh, there. They they become attached to a different object because there's that moment. There's that incredible moment uh, where. Uh, Charles Melton's character stays up all night in their bedroom and then, you know, she wakes up and is like, what's wrong? And he's like, well, there's some things that we should probably talk about. And it's funny and understated in this very dark way, but it's also that's what the movie is about, is that they can't between themselves talk about what happened because she in particular, but I think also to a to a degree, Melton's character cannot look within themselves to see what happened. Well, and there's that amazing scene at the graduation dinner where, you know, Elizabeth asks Gracie, it's like, what did you think was going to happen tonight? And Gracie's like, I thought it would go perfectly. And, yeah. you know, my children would be happy and everyone would love me. And Elizabeth's like, well, that's kind of naive. And Gracie mounts this sort of defense of her own naivete and unknowingness with this sort of perfect confidence. Um, it was probably, it was one of my favorite scenes in the movie, just because it's this moment of, you know, Elizabeth recognizing just how unknowable Gracie is, even to herself. And also an, a, a kind of tacit, implicit admission on the part of Gracie, that Gracie maybe knows a little bit what she's doing to herself at the same time, right? Like, I think she even literally just says the words, well, yes, I'm very naive. And I like, says it like, I believe that is an explicit line, something yeah. to that effect. And something like, and it's like served me very well yes. or something. Um, yeah. And then there's also the question of sort of Joe's motivation in giving Elizabeth the letter, right? Like, does he see it as a defense um, does he see it as evidence of a crime? Because, you know, the letter has this line about how he should destroy it in some way. I think it's a grasping and yeah. a mechanism on his part that he doesn't really understand himself, but that is, is it's done in the hope that maybe someone could know him and could understand his situ his life and his situation because, well, even he and uh, uh, Gracie don't. You just contrast that letter also with the uh, the poem that he wrote, the assignment, what, what is happiness or whatever. Yes. Um, peace. Uh, or what peace, is peace. Or right. what, what it, and it's, and it's, I mean, it's a difference between an adult writing a, a love letter and a child writing a poem. And like the, 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 again, the juxtaposition there is like kind of darkly comic and vaguely horrifying. I don't know. I, I just real quick before we before what did you get? The, the music in this movie is very specific and pronounced. What did you guys make of the the kind of big uh, dramatic again? I the way I describe it, lifetime '90s movie. It's not lifetime uh, '90s movie. It is actually a an adaptation and re-recording and reorchestration of. Um, uh, music for the uh, 1971 Forbidden Romance drama The Go-Between. And so this is a it's a great little cinematic kind of nod to a previous movie about uh, forbidden love and, and the strangeness of it. Yeah, I loved the horror movie use of it. I thought it was great. All right. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs down or thumbs up on May, December? Peter. Thumbs up. One of my favorite movies of the year. Alyssa. Thumbs up. Thumbs down, sadly. 
I wow. did not like it. Can we get a new Sonny? I find I find the the praising of this film to be weirdly suspicious. Not just on your part, but everybody else I see throwing this movie four and five star reviews on Letterboxd. I don't I don't approve. I think something's something's going on here. All right, uh, that is it for today's show. Uh, many thanks to our audio engineer Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode. Tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If you don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. Probably gonna get some of those. I'll convince you that it is in fact the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys on Friday. 